At special times, believers in the Old and New Testaments believe that they ought to make covenants together vowing that they would obey King Jesus. Following in their footsteps, in 1638, Scottish Christians signed the National Covenant which rejected the enforcement of prelacy on the Presbyterian Church. When threatened to have these rights taken away, the Scottish Covenanters in 1639 united under the Blue Banner which read, For Christ's Crown and Covenant. As direct theological descendants of the Scottish Covenanters, the RPCNA still honors the Blue Banner for what it stands for, that Jesus is the only head and king of his church. The Blue Banter podcast's goal is to go about informing the reforming by introducing you to our pastors and under-shepherds of Christ's church. By listening to this podcast, you will have greater clarity on the blessings and challenges faced by each of our congregations. We pray that the Lord blesses you through this podcast for Christ's crown and his covenant. Welcome to another episode of the Blue Banter podcast. We're happy that you're joining us this week. We've got an exciting episode, I think, for you. My name is Aaron Murray. I'm the pastor of Marian Reform Presbyterian Church in North Central Indiana. My name is Joe Smith. I'm the pastor of Westminster Reformed Presbyterian Church in Westminster, Colorado, and it's our privilege to have on uh, our guest today, Pastor and Dr. Nathan Eshelman. He's the pastor of Orlando RPC down in Orlando, Florida. He's one of the Jerusalem Chamber men, one of the uh, Jerusalem Chamber podcasters. He's an author, a blogger over at Gentle Reformation. And in my brief time uh, getting to know him as I was coming up through the Great Lakes Gulf Presbytery, uh, a sharp guy, professional guy, funny. I've, I always thought his balance of professionalism and humor uh, in Presbytery meetings was something uh, to be commended and something that stuck out to me. So, Nathan, it's good to have you on with us. Yeah, good to be here with you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was just because it's our, our pleasure to have you. Um, and we did want to talk about your book a little bit. And I guess the first question that I have for you, we had uh, Kyle Borg on here um, a couple of weeks ago, and his title of his book is What is Love? Right. You know, it's that kind of cheesy song. And then yours is I Have a Confession. And it made me think of the Foo Fighters song, I've Got a Confession to Make. So oh, I'm just wondering, go. with you guys at uh, Grass Markets, are you basically getting your ideas of your titles from, you know, cheesy rock songs? Yeah, we're we're like the pop 90s. 90s uh, um, publishing division of Crown and Covenant. So, gotcha. I love it. I love the marketing strategy. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, Thanks. Every time I listen to the Foo Fighters, I'm going to think of you now. Good. That's great. Yeah. Well, and and your book is called I I Have a Confession, the subtitle, uh, The What and the Why of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, I just wanted to give you some time, maybe plug your book, um, kind of talk about some things that you're excited about it, what people can expect, that kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, the book, I'm, I'm pretty happy with, with how it turned out, uh, in maybe it was 2019 crown and covenant approached me and asked me if I would write a book that was sort of an intro to the Westminster confession of faith for people that weren't very familiar with the confession of faith. And so as I thought through what I think the, the best way to handle that would be, I was thinking of an audience where, you know, many in our in our churches are new to reform theology or they're new to the idea of a reform reform church and at the heart of what it means to be reformed in my estimation is that uh we're confessional christians we have a, a confession of faith that we hold to and so what i wanted to do in the book was 
uh, take a step back and really think about some of the questions that people have coming into a confessional church. And um, those include uh, why we have a confession of faith. You know, I think that idea is very unfamiliar in much of evangelical Christianity. And then uh, secondly, what, what permission do we have to do that? You know, we have the Bible, we talk about being sola scriptura people, we talk about being people of the book. So what right do we even have uh, to, to write a confession of faith? So those are my first couple of chapters, just sort of developing um, introductory why we would even do that. And then uh, third part, or this middle part being uh, the history of the Westminster Confession of Faith. What, how did this come up? You know, this didn't fall out of the sky and golden pallets. It, you know, it has a history. So I wrote about that history some. And then the last part of the book, sort of a bird's eye view of what the confession of faith teaches. You know, what do we believe as Christians? What do we believe about how God saves us? What do we believe about living in society and in the context being a, you know, a Christian society for the Westminster Assembly? You know, how does that affect marriage? How does it affect the civil magistrate? How does it affect life in the church and society? And so sort of thinking about it that way. My hope is really that it's that it can become sort of the go-to book for, you know, if people are new to our churches and they say, what, you know, what do you, what is it you guys are even doing here? I think the book's helpful to hand hand somebody and they be able to get a grasp on what it means to be a confessional Christian. Yeah, the way... Um... Kyle was talking about the Grass Market Press, um, which is the publishing company you guys are, um, you have a hand in, and I guess it's an arm of Crown and Covenant. Uh, These kind of books are kind of the working man, Joe Schmo kind of uh, um, audience. And when I was thinking about a confession, I was like, how how are you going to write a commentary on the confession that's only, you know, 130 pages or so long? I guess I was expecting more of a, you know, paragraph by paragraph commentary like Williamson or like Piper or others. Um, Right. But as I flipped through it, I I found it, you know, I'm not the most well-versed in the confession, but I know it pretty well. And I still found uh, things that I was learning from it. And the way you write, um, it's not stuffy. It's not um, kind of grainy. You've got stories in there, which I think really enliven and um, warm up what you're talking about. So I, I've really appreciated it when I've gone through it so far. Great. Yeah. Great. Joe, yes. have you read it? No, I have not. <laughs> I, I know you haven't. I was just trying to embarrass you. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, super, I'm, I'm really super excited expensive. about the yeah. Yeah. Ten, 10 bucks, Joe. Ten yeah. Bucks. Okay. I'll, I'll get a copy. <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest with you. Uh, Sean Anderson gave me this when I was over at his house the other day. So All right. I, Good. You're not getting any royalties from me. I'm sorry. That's all right. I got them from Sean. <laughs> okay. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So um, I think kind of, as we've said, this podcast, the hope is to not only introduce members of the RPCNA to the pastors of the RPCNA, but also to just serve uh, men in seminary, young pastors like myself, aspiring pastors in you know, Aaron and I both know you as a man who came into the presbytery that we were members of, um, me shortly before getting out, him still now. And so we were just wondering if you had any sort of advice, counsel uh, to guys who uh, down the road in their careers may be coming from one presbytery to another, or guys like myself who 
came up through one presbytery and then entered into another presbytery, just things you may have learned uh, transferring from one presbytery or another, some of the joys of it, some of the challenges of it. Uh, just kind of take that how you will. Sure. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, as we think about the the transferring from Pacific Coast Presbytery to Great Lakes Gulf Presbytery, um, you know, first thing I would say, and maybe not everybody knows this, is that I I was a student under care in the Great Lakes Gulf Presbytery. Mm-hmm. So I was a member of this presbytery, then not a member of it, and then now a member of it again. And um, when I was a student in the presbytery, it, you know, it was pretty much a well-oiled machine. There was a lot of church planting going on. There were a lot of students under care that were, you know, being trained for the ministry. One of the um, the guys that I was coming up with was David Whitla. And, you know, David Whitla, I remember when he was eligible to receive a call, they, you know, brought like letters to Santa in, you know, just like a bag of all of these calls that they were, <laughs> they were giving him, you know, and I'm just sitting there waiting for mine, uh, mine to come. And, um, you know, so it was just a, it was a very different presbytery. But then in uh, January of 2009, I went to Los Angeles to serve as the, the pastor there and really was hoping um, to go in and to revitalize a, a small <laughs> congregation. And it was a presbytery that had struggled for many years uh, from 1955 until 2011, there was decline in membership of uh, the churches as well as um, you know, it went from 11 congregations down to five in those, mm-hmm. in those years. So it's really like, um, you know, going to the wild West in a way and just seeing what, what God would do and um, spent 12 years there. I was very happy in Los Angeles. I love the city of Los Angeles. Um, I really, really love it still. Um, had a great experience with the congregation. And then as, uh, as I was called to Orlando, I really considered like, okay, what, what were the reasons that I believe I was going out to LA? And I had several that were on my mind when I went out and I, you know, I was thinking about the revitalization of a congregation and the ability to raise up men for ministry. And I wanted to see churches planted and I wanted to see the uh, the presbytery tightened up as far as an organization goes. And I really believe that, that God had used me to do those things. So I felt like, you know, the, what God has called me to do, maybe, maybe I'm done with that. And, you know, the, this congregation and the session here was really making a good case that not only were they looking for a guy like me, they were saying, we believe you are the one God's calling to come out here. So I really took that to heart. And then uh, um, accepted a call that was very difficult. It was hard to leave mm-hmm. the congregation that I loved. It wasn't like, you know, I hadn't, you know, I hadn't like failed and needed to leave. I I didn't feel like I, you know, hated these people and needed to get away from them. It was really, really hard because I loved them and I felt like I was doing good work there and I had a good relationship with the congregation. Uh, but it seemed wise to leave on a high point rather than sort of like waiting for everything to fall apart and then and then go. So uh, transferred to back to the Great Lakes Gulf. And I remember when uh, when I was considering uh, this transfer, I was standing in my study in Los Angeles and I got a phone call from uh, someone in the Great Lakes Gulf Presbytery 
And they said to me, aren't you, you know, assuming that I was taking this call, aren't you glad you're going back into the Great Lakes Golf Presbytery? And I, and I said, you know, I, I really don't think that I've thought about it that way at all. You know, you know, God has done really wonderful things here on the West coast. And, um, you know, the Great Lakes Golf Presbytery, there's like a lot of division and fighting and there seemed to be, you know, there's discipline issues and all this, these things, it just didn't seem like I was that excited to go back to Great Lakes Golf. (laughs) And then a follow-up question had to do with where I would fit in the power structure of the, the Presbytery. I thought that's like the weirdest question I've ever had in my life. You know, we're, we're called ministers, we're (laughs) called servants, you know, like I have always told congregations, both in LA and here in Orlando that, you know, like one of our highest callings, so to speak, would be to like scrub the toilets for the kingdom of God. You know, Mm -hmm. we're, we're meant to be servants and we're not meant to come in as Kings and as princes, but we are called to uh, serve. So I've come into the great lakes golf and, you know, there's difficulties and I'm, I'm not sure, you know, to answer that brother's question, I'm not sure if I do fit in the power structure. Um, and that's fine. I don't, I don't need that. I'm happy to, to serve Jesus. However, I need to, and, you know, even here way down on the bottom of the presbytery where, uh, no one probably really asks what we're even doing down here. Um, I'm okay with that. I think that, you know, there are, there are differences. There's a lot of cultural differences between the presbyteries and, um, and, uh, you know, just there's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in the Great Lakes Golf. I'd love to see it get back to that presbytery that I remember when, when I was a student in college and in the seminary where, um, you know, churches were being planted and men were being raised up for the ministry and there was a, a tenderness and a trust among the brothers. I, I really hope and long for that again. Uh, it's interesting just talking about the different, um, DNA that each presbytery has, you know, and it seems it kind of, as you trace our denominations history, you can kind of go through the various presbyteries at different time periods and just see how the Lord is at work in our presbyteries, both through the good times and through the hard times. And, you know, the Lord is uh, doing something both with the um, West coast presbytery here in the GLG and the POA and um, others as well. So I'm excited to see um, the Lord's hand at work. Um, through, through all of this. Yeah. And you know, when, when not long after, after I left LA, there were a series of things that were very difficult on the Pacific coast presbytery. You know, there was a pastor that, that was accidentally shot and killed. Um, there was, um, a pastor that was disciplined and ended up being deposed and there was, you know, sexual abuse charges and these sorts of things. Um, there's churches that have, have really struggled and I really think that if those things had happened when I was there, I would have really felt like I need to stay here, you know, but that's, that wasn't what God had for me. And, you know, you can't look back on that. You just say, this is, this is what God, God's calling me to do. And you're, you're faithful to that. You know, I think one of the, one of the best lessons that I've learned, even in this, this uh, transfer in the last couple of years that I've been here is uh, something we should all know as Christians that, you know, this world is not our home. You know, we, we look ahead to uh, a city whose builder and maker is God 
and you know there's there should be some sense in all of us where where we don't feel comfortable where we are in this world amen to that yeah cool well shifting gears i'm going to steal this next question from aaron um something just a topic i love talking about uh kyle uh, your your partner there on the chamber had uh, some good comments about it but just as men are coming up through the seminary they have this uh, desire to preach the word of god and they're being trained in that um i know i found great help from engaging with other pastors on their philosophy of preaching what they do all of the questions surrounding preaching and what other men do are just absolutely uh, fascinating to me you know each man was like his own his own book on preaching you know to yeah. hear from his experience and those things so uh, we just want to to again, serve our brothers, ourselves, continuing to learn by asking most of our guests kind of this kind of question. Uh, what What is your philosophy of preaching and kind of in the sense of what we're looking at on that? You know, what, I mean, take it how you will, but also just kind of what what elements ought a sermon consist of? Uh, what, is, what is Nathan Eshelman trying to accomplish in his preaching? Uh, what do you emphasize um, in your preaching? Uh, what's What's your preaching style? What advice could you give to guys um, that are coming up new, um, you know, or even experienced guys, just things, things you've learned? Yeah, I I think that that's a great question, Joe. And I think any, you know, preachers ought to be interested in how other preachers preach. And, um, you know, we should care. We should care about the quality of preaching in our churches. We should, we should be known first and foremost as, churches where the gospel is preached and where uh, men and women know that they can be faithfully served the word of God in a pulpit ministry from week to week. So part of my philosophy of ministry, of course, would be that preaching is the primary means of grace by which uh, sinners are converted. You know, I think the apostle Paul uh, teaches very clearly that preaching is to be received as, as the word of God. And we have, uh, confessional statements that back that up, you know, any, any preaching that's faithful to the scriptures is to be thus saith the Lord coming to, coming to his people. Uh, as I preach, I, I'm generally expository preacher, you know, go through books. There's times I've done, um, doctrinal series and, and some other things, but, uh, for the most part, we're given a book and we're told to move through the book and, um, you know, I want that to be organized. I want it to be experiential. I want to see people converted. I want to see people grow in their faith. So, you know, sort of what I do in in uh, sermon preparation is, you know, I always begin with the textual work. I I maybe uh, may get in trouble from some other preachers in this, but I I'll look at other uh, English versions before I look at the Greek. And I want to see where they differ. And, you know, I want to use my Greek work there or my Hebrew work from in the Old Testament on those differences rather than like spending hours and hours and hours translating something and saying, yep, it's exactly what the ESV said, or yep, it's exactly what the new King James said, (laughs) you know, and it's just like, well, you just blew three hours doing work. that's probably not what you're the best at anyways, because let's face Mm -hmm. it, you know, very few pastors are really, really good in the original languages. And that's just, you know, being honest. So I want to use my time well in the original languages, uh, look for those 
places where where there's some difficulties and hone in on those. And then I want to meditate on the text. And when I meditate on the text, I start outlining it in my head. Okay, what's the thesis? What's the main point? What are we trying to hear from this text? And then uh, what are the components of it? You know, how does it fit together? How how would this text be outlined? And um, writing an outline, I think, is the most important thing. Like my wife will say to me on Thursday, um, do you have your outline for your sermon? And she knows that if I have my outline, that I'm set, you know, it, because that's the work is mm. writing an outline for, for preaching. Um, I'll, after I have my outline, I'll spend some time in, in commentaries and those sorts of things. And then I write, I actually like writing full manuscripts. I went to uh, Puritan seminary for my MDiv, the same place that Kyle went. He's probably talked about this a little bit. We have some differing views on our time at Puritan, but um, when I write in uh, a sermon, I want to think through what I'm going to say in the pulpit. So I sort of say, I'm writing, I'm preaching the sermon through my fingertips. So I'm writing it like I'm preaching it so that I have that manuscript uh, there. It doesn't mean that I'm like held to it. And when I preach, I've never had anyone say, you know, you're reading us a manuscript. No, people probably don't even know that I use a full manuscript. Um, but I do do the full manuscript. And I, and I think back on my time at Puritan and Dr. Beakey saying that, when guys start in the ministry, they should start with writing full manuscripts because it's the highest discipline in preaching. Mm. And then as you get experience, pull back away from that. You know, if you want to work towards being uh, totally without notes, or if you want to go in with just like, you know, post-it note with your outline or something, you're free to do that. But he said, learn the discipline first. And I just haven't gotten away from uh, full manuscripts. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an immature preacher in that way, I guess. But I know that uh, Joel Beakey also uses full manuscripts still, and he's been in it a long time. Um, so uh, I'm okay with that. Uh, some of the things that I want to, um, to accomplish is like, I, like I said, I want to see people converted. I want people to know uh, what it means to be a Christian. I want to, I want people to be able to, to discern things that are true and right and good. And I don't want to just like give a message where everyone feels like they're, you know, Christians and everybody's safe, but at the same time, I don't want to like beat down the people of God. It's mm -hmm. really a balance of, you know, comforting those that need to be comforted, rebuking those that need to be rebuked, admonishing those that need admonishment and teaching those that need to be taught all of those things. Now, something else that I think is, is helpful in uh, preaching. And this is something that I started when, when, um, when I got to Los Angeles, I didn't have time for this in seminary, but I think that reading good fiction mm -hmm. helps in preaching. Um, my background before I went uh, into school for theology and did my theology training my background is that I was in fine arts and art history. And I think that that's just like a totally different world than most pastors, you know, at least in the RPCNA, 
you know, most RPCNA guys, you're like, okay, what were you before you're a pastor? And they're like, I was an engineer. I was an engineer. I was an engineer. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I was an art student and art students and engineers are, it's two different worlds, like mm -hmm. totally different worlds. And I think that uh, reading things that are vivid and descriptive and that are able to like show people um, a word picture with good words is something that preachers really need to do. And, um, you know, because we are not, we are not a people as Presbyterians, we're not a people that use images, you know, our images are the sacraments. You know, we have, we have, um, water, we have bread and we have wine. Those are our images. And then in our preaching, we have to build those images, you know, not, you know, I'm not being cheesy, like, you know, think of a picture of Jesus and blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm not saying let's break. Yeah, please don't. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying let's break the second commandment, but I'm saying let's, let's remind people that in our words, in our preaching and in our description of the book, we can show them something that is vivid, that is lively mm -hmm. and that they can really come to know the word of God in a deeper way through our use of good words. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. What are some, what are, God, Joe. I just wanted to ask real quick, what are some fiction authors that maybe you would, because I'll be honest, I'm not a big fiction reader. I, I totally agree with actually everything you just said, though, and I would like to be. But what are some, just a couple guys or some books off top of your head that maybe yeah. a guy like myself could get started with? Well, okay, so this is this is what I would do, Joe, for you. I would, since you're in Colorado, I would research, figure out whoever the most famous fiction author is from Colorado that writes about Colorado stuff and just read everything he wrote. You know, in 2009, I start in, when I went to LA, I started reading John Steinbeck and, you know, John Steinbeck is, is California through and through and just read everything that John Steinbeck wrote and, uh, you know, helped to fill my mind with vivid imagery that that was useful and you know there's there's others too like um you know being in florida now i'm more intrigued with hemingway but hemingway has like a lot of cocktail recipes that uh steinbeck didn't have and uh you know cocktail recipes and you know some of the wild living that that hemingway did isn't really conducive to uh, uh rp life so it's a little different but um you know, that's what I would say. Maybe just pick an author, uh, a classic, something, and and just run with it, and just just enjoy it, and start thinking about how they describe events, or how they describe objects, or how they describe people, and then think about your own preaching, and ask how you describe events, or how you describe preaching, or when you know if you're preaching narratively, and you say and you, and you give the description about what's happening, you know, are you building on things that they may be thinking, you know, I'm not saying to embellish or to make stuff up, but, you know, just the real human emotion and, and feel of what's there in the text. Sometimes we really miss that as reform guys, because we're so good at systematics, you know, we're really good at saying, here's, here's logic. And then we move from a to B to C and we miss a lot of that real flesh, human emotion and descriptors that are there in the word of God. That's good. Aaron, did you have something? 
Well, I was just going to mention um, the importance of descriptive words, but but I've also found, and I mean, what do I know? I'm, you know, four months into this, but I found even using the position of the pulpit. So we've got the pulpit center stage showing that, you know, the centrality of the word. Yeah. But even when you're doing like a compare and contrast kind of thing, being on one end of the pulpit while you describe yeah. one thing and then the alternative going to the other side of the pulpit and just kind of using that visual imagery as well to kind of help articulate some of the differences. And it seems that people tend to track better on the different distinctions based on your location, even um, behind the pulpit. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I think all of, all of those things are, are good. You know, we don't, we don't want to be showmen, you know, we don't want, right. You know, we don't need to bring junk into the pulpit. You know, here's a rubber duck and blah, blah, blah. We don't need to do any of that stuff. But as communicators, we can communicate well and we can describe well. And if we're men that, you know, we're literally paid for our words. Um, and if if we're able to use those words well, the way we would want uh, somebody in a different field to use what they're paid to do well, uh, we should take advantage of that. Remember telling a student one time in the Pacific Coast Presbytery that if you went to a doctor and you were diagnosed with something after describing your symptoms and the doctor proceeded to say, you know, I, I don't really remember what it's called, but it's something like, and then they give you some vague answer. You know, that's not what you want. You're not going to build confidence that that's the medical professional you want to go to. But if we come to the pulpit and we're able to say, thus saith the Lord, and we know our systematic theology well, we know the redemptive narrative of, of the scripture well, and we can give that. And we are able to use strong, vivid words that truly communicate and build up the saints. You're going to build trust that you, that the people of God will know that you know what you're talking about and you come with the authority of God as you, as you preach the word. And I don't mean that arrogantly. I just, that's, that's what the scriptures say as we're ambassadors, we come speaking God's voice to the people. Yeah. I, I love everything you just said there. And that's, um, I I've recently switched to a full manuscript and preaching from it, though. I spend the time, you know, a couple hours before the sermon going over it so that I can actually yeah. preach it and still preach it as I would a skeleton, uh, but it's there, but just um, taking that time and that exercise of thinking through every word and the progression of thoughts or the illustrations and, and just getting those things in the head gives a precision and vividness that I don't think I would be able to have, you know, mate, Kyle is, is a, a freak of nature can do stuff super quick. And there's guys like that, but I've just come to realize I'm not a guy. I don't think 40 years from now, I'll be a guy who, who can just think that precisely um, in the moment. You know, it's one thing when you're dialoguing with someone and you're bouncing mm -hmm. ideas and there's this iron sharpening iron and, and you can be precise in extemporary, extemporary, whatever conversation. Sure. But just, you know, there's something different about the preaching moment that right. I've really found helpful of, of manuscripting and thinking through uh, things beforehand. So since we've kind of talked about preaching now, um, that is obviously one of the roles that we do as uh, pastors, our, our main role, but we're also called to um, shepherd the flock. And this podcast is kind of meant to serve a narrow audience and that we're targeting primarily those in the RPCNA or those who are curious about our denomination. Um, 
and it's helpful for young pastors like Joe and myself, perhaps even more um, experienced pastors as well. But we're hoping that um, our members can listen to this and kind of benefit from it as well. And, you know, they just heard about you and how you uh, go about your sermon preparations. So they're kind of seeing how the sausage is made. Um, but when it comes to this idea of shepherding, oftentimes um, it can be somewhat intimidating for a member to kind of hear that their elders want to do home visitations or, um, you know, pick your type of shepherding that they're wanting to do. How would you counsel kind of your average member um, to receive that or what they can expect? Um, that that kind of question. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, that's kind of what we're going for. How, how can they interact healthily with their elders regarding their shepherding of their own soul, souls and hearts? Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think that's something that, you know, unless somebody has been in reformed churches for a long time or multiple generation uh, reformed believers, I think that the idea of pastors and elders uh, sort of having a voice into your life is something that is foreign to many, mm-hmm. you know, sort of like what business does he have asking me about anything or giving input on anything. And I think that's a sort of the place we are as um, in the RPC. And I think we have a lot of members that didn't grow up in reformed churches and, you know, the whole idea is new, whether it's home visitation, like you mentioned, or, you know, giving, giving biblical counsel that uh, is intended to, you know, cause, cause them to grow or whatever. So, um, you know, I, I would encourage the members of, of churches to uh, really work through a good pastoral theology of, you know, what am I getting into if I'm joining a reformed church and, um, you know, what are the limitations? I mentioned the, you know, the phone call that, that I've mentioned, uh, about, um, power structure and that sort of stuff. And I mentioned that we're, we're called to be servants and the idea of power and authority in our churches is that is um the way it's often described theologically is that it's ministerial not magisterial you know we talk about serving rather than reigning and you know elders and pastors have a lot of authority you know they have the keys of the kingdom and can keep people out of the church and bring people into the church and you know the power to baptize and administer sacraments and to say who can't have the sacraments. And, you know, that is a lot of power in a sense, but it's a power that is of service, not of reigning. So we want to, we want to serve our people and we want people to respond to that. Uh, well, uh, one text that I think about um, with that, with, with uh, the shepherding component is first, first Thessalonians five fourteen. Um, that says, we exhort you, brethren, warn those that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, and to be patient towards all. And when we think about what it means to serve the church with shepherding or with pastoral care and how people receive that pastoral care, there's different sheep that need different things. 
you know, there are those that are unruly and they need to be warned. And there are those that are faint hearted or feeble and they need to be comforted. And there are those that are weak and they need to be upheld or they need to be strengthened. And in all of those things, the apostle Paul tells us to be patient with all, you know, when ministers or, or elders are quick to run to discipline or, you know, quick to run to rebuke or, or quick to run to any sort of, you know, um, uh, way that, that, that they're trying to control somebody or, you know, tell them that the way they're living is wrong or whatever. We need to be reminded that we're called to be patient and that there are the, we need to have the wisdom to think through the categories of the new Testament for the type of sheep that we serve and how we are to serve them. Like first Thessalonians five fourteen says. And so on the flip side of that, I would encourage members to think about what type of sheep they are as well. You know, they're not always going to be great at self-assessment. You know, they may, you know, wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and just be like, I am a great Christian and they might be a horrible Christian, you know, so self-assessment isn't always great. Um, But think about, you know, how you are in the church and how you are walking as a Christian and think of those categories. Am I unruly? Am I faint hearted? Am I weak? And if your pastor comes to you in a way that is appropriate with that, you should receive that as, as God's shepherding and be thankful for that. You know, if, if you are unruly, be thankful you're warned, you know, but if you're, if you're being admonished, but you're actually weak, uh, that's a conversation you need to have with your whole body of elders and say, brothers, I feel like I'm not being shepherded well in this area. And here's why, you know, so it's sort of a two edged sword, Aaron, you want, people to respond well to shepherding. Um, but sometimes people aren't shepherded well. Mm-hmm. And when they're not shepherded well, you know, why would you expect them to respond well to that? Mm-hmm. You know, we have a responsibility and as pastors, and in in one sense, the buck stops with us. You know, in any in any organization, the guy that is the face of the organization, that's the one that's in trouble. And we need to be humble enough to take responsibility and ownership for that. You know, if there are people in our church that haven't been shepherded well and, and they call us out, own it, own it, man. And, and make sure you're doing it as the scriptures call you to do it. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's helpful um, to hear both as a a pastor and I hope for uh, our members as well. Um, Joe, you had uh, one final question you wanted to ask and then we'll, uh, let you go home. A little scared of this one, but <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we'll we'll plan for the listeners. We'll plan to be asking something different to our our guests in February. But so Aaron and I kind of wanted just to toss in a kind of a funny, but I mean it's there are important questions, but just a theological question that people go back and forth on that that doesn't separate reformed brethren from reformed brethren and i thought at first it would be something that aaron and i would disagree on and actually we we agreed on it but so far we're 0 for 2 kyle and barry have both disagreed uh with us on this so i'm just hoping we don't go 0 and 4 but okay i'm, I'm prepared for that 
so kind of the, the, the question is, um, could Jesus have gotten sick during his earthly ministry? So not, not could he have, but a similar question to impeccability. Could Jesus Christ have, have gotten sick during his earthly ministry? Wow. Yeah, that's a, um, that's a tough one in, in one sense. Um, the, I, I, I would think without, without spending too much time because it is an on the spot question, I would say yes, because of, um, because he suffered with like weaknesses as we did in, in his human, in his human flesh. Um, you know, he, he physically suffered on, on the cross. Um, he, he suffered in his humanity. He suffered in his emotions. Um, you know, so I, I would say he could, you know, probably catch a cold or, or those sorts of things, but he also would have like the perfect immune system that, that would fight it and probably, uh, you know, get rid of it the way it's intended to get rid of it right away. I mean, in a perfect world, it's like, could somebody catch a cold in a perfect world? And you say, well, a cold doesn't exist in the perfect world. Well, Jesus lived in a fallen world where the cold exists, but he has, you know, an immune system that is probably able to fight it perfectly. So that's where I'll go with it. I don't know if that's what. Uh... So I guess I'm confused, is because it, it sounds like you said he could, and then he's got a perfect immune system, so maybe. He no, could. I say he he can, but he's fighting it, mm-hmm. so he can fight it perfectly. It doesn't. It's like, could you say, um, you know, could, you know, uh, if if Jesus went as a little boy, if he fell off his bike, would he scrape his knee? Mm-hmm. And you say, well, yeah, even though he has a perfect body, but he's going to heal perfectly. So that's where I, that's where I'd go with it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure uh, too much on it, but I think that's where I would go. So sure. can I ask what your previous uh, listen or your previous uh, guests have said and what your thoughts on it are? So, so that this makes Aaron and I over three, Kyle and Barry uh, agree <laughs> with you. Uh, what, what convinced me? So what stirred me originally was a conversation I overheard in, seminary and then i was looking into it and so one of your old professors david murray has a little article on his uh, head heart and hand blog uh-huh. on this and he argues that jesus could not have gotten ill and huh. I've, I've found his reasoning somewhat persuasive though i think i think the one thing i'll, I'll say in a minute i'll present a short little case uh, for why and then um but but i think some of you guys make an interesting point so essentially he appeals to the fourfold of state of grace you know, Christ obviously wasn't created in the state of glory, uh, not in the state of grace. He didn't need salvation. That leaves sin and innocence. Obviously, he wasn't created in the state of innocence. Included in that, Ecclesiastes seven twenty nine would have been an upright condition. So, so he was he was created an upright man. And then he appeals to just positive scripture statements. Um, obviously, there's no example of him catching a cold or getting ill in the scriptures anywhere. And then you have positive statements such as he's the holy one the lamb without blemish and without spot being contrasted to the lame and the sick um, sacrifices of the old Testament. And then he makes a distinction, which has been helpful for me, though I still need to think through it between natural weaknesses of finite man 
and unnatural weaknesses of fallen man. And he would say, you know, things like tired, Mm -hmm. uh, hungry, maybe even being able to, you know, scrape your knee if you fall down uh, would be weaknesses, natural weaknesses of finite man. But it's an unnatural weakness of fallen man uh, to be able to get sick. Uh, But I I think the whole thing is in this and obviously what somewhat distinguishes uh, the first and the second Adam in the estate of innocence is the environment. Um, And so I think I think Kyle may have appealed to that as well. You kind of did as well. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm not as sure as I was. Did they (laughs) did um, did the others say that he would have gotten the booster shot, though, to to help him (laughs) not get sick? We didn't ask that. I, okay. I don't know if that one came up. All right, that's good. I thought maybe you guys would ask something like, you know, are you in for superlapsarian, and you know why? And because we're going to be all over the place in the RP Church on that, or you know, right. are you are you post mill or ah mill? And if you're pre mill, here's the door, right? You know, something like that. <laughs> maybe no, maybe some so spotter. For, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. Well. um, this will this will bring this one to a close. So again, I'm I'm Joe Smith, pastor of Westminster Reformed Presbyterian Church. Aaron Murray, pastor of Marion RPC, is my co-host, and our guest has been uh, Pastor and Doctor Nathan Eshelman from Orlando RPC. We do extend our thanks again to him, and until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for having me, guys. Bye.